Hey, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Roman, with some big news. Speech Bubble is doing our first convention appearance at the Mississauga Comic Expo at the Mississauga Central Library on October 21st from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Come visit us at 301 Burnham Thorpe Road West. We'll be giving away free swag and we'd love to see you. You can also visit some of our past guests, Chip Zdarsky, Jay Torres, Fearless Fred, and Ryan North are just some of the many people we've interviewed who you'll be able to meet in person. Come see us. We'd love to meet you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You probably found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com, or you might be listening to us on Google Play, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other people find us. With me today, uh, we continue our uh, interview series with the artists and writers of the Raid Studio. They've been coming in one after the other to promote their Raid 1 anthology. It features a work by the people we had in our last episode, Gibson Quarter, and right now I'm interviewing his writer on the story that he wrote for the Raid 1 anthology, Anthony Falcone. Anthony Falcone is probably best known in Canada as the writer of Northgard. Now, Mark Shaneblum, the creator of Northgard, was in studio way back. So if you if you page back into our archives or you scroll up on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, you will see our interview very early on with Mark Shaneblum. Mark uh, sold his rights to a Northgard to Chapter House, and now Anthony is the writer on that book for Chapter House. He's also a prose novelist. He has a book called Comic-Con Men, and he's also currently working on the sequel. He has a number of creator-owned projects as well. So I want to welcome Anthony Falcone. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. We go back. We've seen a few uh, superhero movies together in our time. That's right. That's right. Yeah, back in the day, they used to get the group together from Raid, a few guys that we knew, uh, Scott Hepburn, Francis Manipal, you, and we used to go out and hang out and watch all the Avengers movies and things like that, and then go for drinks after. A good time had by all. It is. It is. Toronto Comics is is a tight scene, right? Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And, And it's cool because you see people at cons and then you're like hey i didn't know you knew that guy and you know you get to see them outside of the promotional environment and get to know them a little bit better right that's right that's right it's cool it's cool so um yeah we had gibson in on our on our last episode and he did the art for your story on the story that you have in the raid one anthology yeah it's called uh, quid pro quo right 
Yeah, so the the short story in the anthology is called Arena, okay. but but it's from the larger world of quid pro quo. Uh-huh. So a couple, I, I must have been a year and a half ago, Gibson and I were talking and Gibson just said, you know, Anthony, I'd love to draw something that, that you write. Is there anything that, you know, you've been kind of thinking of that maybe we could work on together? And I had had a few sort of short 10 page uh, stories that I had written just as intro stories to potential larger worlds. And so I gave them all to Gibson. I said, Gibson, here are four stories. Take a look and see what, you know, if there's anything that catches your eye. And one of the ones that caught his eye was the story quid pro quo, which is like kind of like UFC in space, but the the sort of shorter, I guess, elevator pitch is that there's a large corporation that um, gives people money for, for medical care. Uh, like, so whole planets might be ravaged by a disease or something like that, right? And they, in order to get the, the actual money for medical care or in order to get medicine, they have to send a champion to fight in this sort of gladiatorial like arena in space it's like a giant you know coliseum class spaceship and then all these different people uh these champions come together to fight but the champions end up being sort of genetically modified in different ways so that's where we have this kind of ufc in space but also people are almost like living pokemon in a lot of ways too so with this i had wanted to really really give gibson a a whole kind of you know palette of of characters characters and colors to kind of play with. And so any of the actual design is all 100% Gibson, right? For a, a lot of the characters. And that, like I, I might have ideas of, of, of what I, um, I I want for a character, but I've found over the years that it's best to really, really trust your, your artist. Like like you you know nobody just goes out and buys a comic book script, right? Like that's not that's not the product. The end product is the actual comic book, right? The artist is almost more important than the writer when it comes to yeah, comics. right. I mean like, like in all honesty, yes, yes right. I mean yeah. like there's a lot of writers that might say no, no, no. It's an equal but and sure like it, it is a very collaborative you know uh medium but ultimately you need the words and you need the pictures right and right. You, can't, if you don't have the pictures it's not a comic right? book but if you don't have any words you probably still could have a comic book, right? right? Now, now comic writing isn't only just adding dialogue and captions, right? Comic book writing is saying, okay, well, this is what happens next. And all of that is then interpreted by the writer. But I, I, I just really find that when I'm writing my scripts, so, I mean, like I do write full script style, but I tend not to really like describe every single exact thing that needs to be in a panel because i do think that you need to rely on your artist and your artist need like is doing their part in terms of of the collaboration it's interpreted by the artist yeah yeah and if, i mean every once in a while there'll be something where you'll think oh okay well that, that isn't re- really what i meant maybe it's this instead but in most cases like it, you know for every character design that i've ever had an artist do it's either been exactly what i had in my mind and i love it or it's something totally different and I've loved it. Like I never ever have been disappointed in, in the sort of ideas or character bullets that I gave for a character design and it came back. It's 
always always been amazing and that's part of like who the caliber of people that you work with right like the people that you pick to collaborate with right yeah and then sometimes you just sort of luck out into some of the people that like you you get to work with too right but but no i've been very fortunate to work with excellent excellent artists and um so the story for gibson and i though we we've done 10 pages already as part of the larger one but for for spacing reasons we'd wanted to create a little bit of a shorter intro to the um, to the actual world so I came up with a new four page story which is in the Raid 1 anthology and that uh, really gives people a taste of the quid pro quo world. Gibson and I have been talking about how we want to sort of release the, the quid pro quo story. We'll probably have about it's about a hundred pages right now is sort of the first chunk. Um, he hasn't drawn it and I haven't written the whole thing yet. And so we might release it kind of like 30 pages ish, uh, a, a year, you know, like, like kind of slowly o- over time and then have it all wrapped up. Or we might try to have a bit more of an aggressive schedule. We'll, we'll sort of see. Some of it will depend on what uh, the Raid Studio decides to do over the next little while because we were really happy with how the anthology went. So uh, for, for all your listeners, as Aaron mentioned, uh, the studio put out an anthology um, this year. We released it at Fan Expo. Uh, the Raid Studio is a collective of, of artists based in Little Italy here in Toronto. Uh, it includes myself, Ramon Perez, Francis Manipal, Marcus Toll, Kalman Andrushovsky, uh, Scott Hepburn, Nimit Malavia, Taryn Cheda, uh, you know, uh, Tribe Wong, Irma Kanila, just like just a whole host of amazing, amazing talent that I'm fortunate to be part of. And we had all wanted to come together. So there's 15 of us are collaborators in this anthology. Uh, the stories range from sci-fi, from slice of life, from high fantasy, from a little bit more horror and uh, really just a little something for everybody but we're extremely excited about how it turned out very proud of of how it turned out and uh, everybody can uh, check it out on the raid website which is uh, the raidstudio.world I believe we have, we have a, a new one coming out a new website that just got uh, launched recently that's awesome and it's it's a really big thing for the raid guys uh, I, I don't know I just want to educate the listeners on some uh, raid history but uh, raid stands for the royal academy of illustration and design and back when it was more known by its full name uh, the raid guys the raid founders uh, released an anthology called uh, rumble royale and i think that's the last time uh, an anthology came out of the raid studio why is this important because the founders of the raid studio are people like chip zadarsky cameron stewart uh, ben shannon there's some pretty heavy hitting people that have graced the raid studio so to have this be like the next generation anthology uh, so many years later is is huge and, and I mean, it's interesting because, you know, like uh, the Raid Studio has sort of been a little bit like like the cast of Saturday Night Live, right? Like the heavy hitters that have kind of come and gone, you know? So uh, Ken Lashley has been a member of the studio. Andy Belanger has been a member of the, the uh, 
studio as well. And we've just had, you know, uh, Paul Ravoche was there for a little while. Yeah, Paul Ravoche, he's right. like the designer of like Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, he worked on that. Uh, Carrie Nord has been uh, a studio member for a, for a little bit. So it's just been like this amazing, amazing group of talent that has sort of come through and you get to work with and you get to talk to and talk about your projects. And um, the working in a studio for pretty much all of us has been just this huge, huge plus. And it's allowed us to just, you know, push ourselves creatively uh, to increase our output. You always want to sort of, you know, um, th there, there's like a friendly competition in, in, in a way. And that when you see everybody around you sort of working so hard and coming up with new things and coming with new ideas, it sort of inspires you to do more and more as well. So Quid Pro Quo is, is sort of the first of a series of things that Gibson and I are working on. That's one of the creator-owned projects that I have. Uh, the first story in the anthology, though, is uh, a story of um, Brotherhood of the Iron Dragon. And that's a creator-owned work that Marcus Toe and I are working on. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, man. yeah. Really excited about this one as well. Um, this was an idea that Marcus had uh, he's ha had percolating uh, you know, in his mind for a while. Came to me a couple years ago and just said, hey, you know, I really want to work with a writer on this. I have a lot of ideas of how I want this to go. And so he and I talked about how we could probably, you know, come up with like a larger arc. I think right now we probably would have 20 to 24 issues worth of worth of story but really it could easily go beyond that because we just have we, we know exactly where where we, we want to go um and we have a short story in this that kind of really introduces people to to the world so the elevator pitch for that as we sort of joke for is you know star wars in ancient china Luke is a girl and that's kind of like the the easiest way to sort of explain it but it's th that, that there's this group of, of mighty warriors who uh, defended uh, ancient China against a dark army but something happens which shatters that brotherhood and uh, we're introduced to sort of the next generation of, of brotherhood heroes and this young girl who ends up taking on the mantle and reforming the brotherhood by seeking out old members uh, in order to sort Sort of defeat this lar this dark army and 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 uh, save her her village. And do we have martial arts in there? Oh, so many martial arts! Like I, so the the, the first thing that the, the, when I when I first met Marcus was years ago. I was writing for uh, Comic Book Daily, and I was asked to do uh, to moderate a panel at a Wizard World show. So you know they, they gave me all the panel information. It was it was a DC New Fifty Two panel. It was just when New Fifty Two had started. Like it was very very. You know, so this is like September twenty eleven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, actually, it must have been 2012. must have been March 2012, okay. right? So, like, it gets a number of, of issues have come out already. And so, uh, the panel was Francis and Marcus and Marco Rudy and Ken Lashley were all on the panel. And so, you know, like any good moderator, you do your research. So, I picked up some recent issues that everybody had worked on. And Marcus was working on Batwing at, at the time. And it was, I think, Batwing issue nine. And it was a Court of Owls crossover. And so, Batwing was was fighting uh, one of the owls and the entire issue the entire issue is just this great street fight between batwing and the the owl and it reminded me of a Dragon Ball episode in that you can have like just this whole episode that's just a single fight and somehow it works. Like it doesn't seem boring. And it was there that I was like, okay, Marcus really is just an amazing, amazing choreographer. And when it comes to fight scenes. And so some of the stuff that he's come up with for Brotherhood is just that people are just going to go nuts about it. That's like, awesome. It's great. I yeah. mean, 
we've had Marcus in here before. Uh, he's another episode that's in our archive. Uh, if you're not unfamiliar with Marcus, he's working on uh, Nightwing. Uh, he had his own creator-owned book that just wrapped up called Joyride, uh, which is really good. He's worked on Red Robin. So uh, yeah, yeah, Marcus he's on is on Guardians of the Galaxy right now. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. right now. So uh, definitely a guy that uh, that you need to watch out for, and you should you should check out his episode as well. Anyway, man. I want to get into like how you got into this. Sure. How did yeah. you start writing comics? How did you start writing novels? Uh, you know, where did you grow up? What was your early life like? And how did you land ultimately at the Raid Studio? Uh, so I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. Or I was born there and I grew up in like the Hamilton, Burlington area. L- like every good. 905 kid. I came to Toronto as much as I possibly could, right? You take the go train in, get to see a Jays game, get to see the Leafs at the gardens, right? Like all of that, you know, except for the Argos. Cause if you're from Hamilton, then you, you hate the Argos. So that's <laughs> like, you know, forget that. Right. But, uh, but so for us, it was always a treat to get to come to Toronto. And as you get older, right, you would do the circuit of all the shops, right? So you'd come in, you'd go to, uh, I mean, at the time, I guess it would have been, uh, uh, like uh, Dragon Lady and uh, what uh, Third Quadrant and Gray Region and Harry T's and you just do like like you just do like the big big circuit right? you hit the snail you hit the beguiling like all that load yourself up with books back on the train and I mean we we had good stores in Hamilton too it's not that it's just that there just weren't as many right so if you really really wanted to do a big circuit you had to come to Toronto because that was still back in the day where like if you were dip, like you know bin diving for back issues you needed to go to as many stores as possible, right? You can't just click on on eBay and get out every issue you need ordered right to your house. Um, so I always loved comic books, right? Even from a young time. To this day, uh, Gru is one of my favorite comics. Just like such a great, such a oh, great yeah, thing. Oh yeah, Gru know? the Wonder. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, I met Sergio Aragonis at a convention a few years ago. Oh, and and like, that was one of my few fanboy moments that I really had. I'm like, man, this guy's awesome, right? So chatted with him for a while, like just in a, in a really, really kind, like a great great uh you know uh, he, he talked to me about when he was coming up with, with like bits like for mad or whatever that what he does is he thinks of an idea like say so you know mad about this or mad about that right and then he comes up with he, he, he writes like the alphabet down one side of the page and he comes up with a gag for each letter of the alphabet and then he picks and chooses the best one to use but that's a way for him to generate like a lot of ideas oh, that's awesome yeah so it's a, just like a neat little and i was like oh that's a super cool tip that i just got from Sir Jerry and, and so, okay. I feel like that tip would apply to other things too. Oh, totally, right? Yeah. yeah, like anytime you're, if you need to come up with a lot of ideas, that's just a really good, easy way to to think about, you know, how to generate that many ideas. It gives you a good prompt, right? I always uh, enjoyed writing from from when I was a kid. I wrote all the way through high school. When I was in university for a long time, I was actually in in academia. My my degree is in classics, so I did my my masters in ancient Roman history. Uh, so I got to write a lot, obviously now it's scholarly writing. It's not a lot of, you know, fictional stuff, but you, you just keep practicing that craft. Mm-hmm. And even, um, in, you know, what, like when I've had office jobs and day jobs, you do business writing. And so you just sort of always maintain that. Yeah. It's still like vocabulary and diction and things like that. Right? Yeah. And it's just practicing the craft, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you don't always think that, that, that you are practicing the craft when you're, you know, writing an email to somebody in an office, but you are right. It's still, 
it still contributes to how you sort of convey thoughts and ideas. Um, and then I had started uh, working in comics journalism for Comic Book Daily. Um, so I wrote for them for five years, started working for them in 2010, and then like I said, I had uh, done that panel at um, at a Wizard World show, and at that time, the Raid Studio actually had like a bunch of empty spaces and was opening to hoteling space. So I'd asked Marcus about like, oh, you know, like I really want to to uh, you know like hotel here, and I, I guess you know I'm not everybody might be familiar with the term, but a lot of times in in uh, larger cities, the there'll be office space in areas where you can just rent a desk. So there's a nominal fee you pay per month and you just come in and you can work in that desk. And there's lots of different ways. And it, it kind of just for people like writers and artists that sometimes work at home too much, it's a great way to kind of get out and be able to, you know, just interact with other people. So I had started uh, doing that in 2012. A little bit after that, uh, maybe about a year, year and a half after that, I was asked to join the studio full time. Uh, and work with the guys. And since then, we've just been doing, you know, sort of sort of better and better things. When you're asked to join the studio full time, is that a decision that they make and then they approach you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, and, and like now because the studio is more full up, it isn't, it isn't kind of the same thing because we don't really have hoteling space in the way, in the way that we used to, we just, cause we have more people now, right. but essentially the studio has monthly meetings, just like, like any sort of organization, right? We have regular meetings and, uh, at the, those meetings, we kind of, you know, like people said, okay, well, I think Anthony would be like a really good fit and it really works well and brings a lot of ideas and supportive of all these things. So, were you so, yeah. already working on comics before you went in there? Or? Uh, no, no, no. I, I, it was comics journalism and I was doing my own writing. So oh, okay. I had had like, you know, uh, some poetry published. I had had some short stories that I had self-published on Amazon, things like that. Right. Okay. But I just sort of like started dipping my toe into the work for hire pool okay. when I, when I joined the studio. So and then they decide like, you know, that he would be, a, you'd be a good fit. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, because everybody in the studio is at sort of a different level in their career, right? Some people might have very little published and some people are, you know, multiple award winning New York time, bestselling artists and writers. Right. So it, it, it isn't that you have to sort of have achieved a certain level of success to, to join the studio that that was never one of the studio markers. It's more had to do with, you know, um, your, your work, your dedication, how you kind of mesh and meld with the rest of the studio. And that's sort of been kind of how, how it's, it's kind of gone. It, it's, it's been a much more organic process than maybe people think the uh, studio is. Um, but it's also a thing that has sort of made me a better person. So, uh, one of the things that, that, that I've talked about a lot is, um, uh, Ken Ross, Robinson has a, a, a book called The Element, where he talks about, you know, creativity and working on creative endeavors. And people kind of have a weird relationship with creative works in the, the and the, with the term professional and amateur. So there's a general sense of like, if you aren't getting paid for it, then you're just an amateur. And therefore it means that you, you're, you're, it's not very good, but there's a lot of amateur stuff that's excellent. Like for example, the Olympics are amateur athletes and that's because they don't get paid to compete, but they're literally the best people in the world at that thing where the difference between pro and amateur is not what 
people think of when they think, oh, I'm an amateur painter, right? Or I'm a professional comic book artist. You can still approach things at a professional level, even if your paycheck is, your paycheck might be non-existent. In this book, he discusses that, but he also discusses how in order to truly sort of embrace the creative life, you need to find your tribe. And it's sort of this group of like-minded individuals that will push you to and push your creative boundaries and make you be better. And for me, like, you know, finding the the, the studio was definitely a lot of that, right? In terms of my, my creativity, right? Finding that tribe. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So in what ways... Uh, do they push you? Can you give me an example of like yeah, an so exchange? I, so, so I mean, like, um, I uh, was working a day job when I first joined the, the uh, studio. I, uh, I mean, I still work at a day job, but but I was, you know, ha- had this day job, and uh, writing was, you know, a nice little side hobby for me, and it had started to bring in a little bit of extra money, which is fantastic, and that's great. So I used to show up to the studio around six or seven p.m., then I would leave at like nine or ten p.m. And Ramon would say to me, oh, just breezing in and out, eh? Right? Because they've they've all been there for, you know, since 9 a.m. They might not leave until midnight, until 1 o'clock. One of the first conversations I had with Francis when I joined the studio was he was prepping for uh, Boston Comic Con. But he had a deadline that he needed to meet, like, before he went to the con. So he had been up working for 29 hours straight like just at the studio for 29 hours drawing and writing and making sure that he made that deadline he was working on the flash at the the time and i remember thinking like oh man i just came in for two hours right so so it's one of those things where you know obviously like I, I had a day job and I had other stuff and I, so I was still like, you know, I was putting in lots of hours, but in terms of, of my creative output, you know, you, you want to be there a little bit longer. You want to push yourself a little bit more. Like maybe I can stay a little bit more. Maybe I can write an extra paragraph. Maybe I can write an extra page today before I go home. And with that, it increases your productivity. Cause these guys are pushing themselves and you want to push yourself right along with them. Oh yeah. Cause and it's, it's interesting too, like just all of the sort of tips and, and things that you pick up over the years. Cause I, I'm fascinated by productivity and by procrastination. Cause they're like, the, they're two sides of the same coin. So I talk about it a lot. And I remember talking with Scott Hepburn once about, you know, hours in, in the chair, right? How you just need to keep a number of hours in the chair. And he said, you do, but the number of hours you spend in the chair is not the indicator of whether or not you can go home. Me finishing this panel lets me know I can go home. Right. If I'm in this chair and if I'm looking on Facebook or if I'm watching YouTube videos, then I'm not drawing as fast as I can. So I can't go home until this, this panel is done. If I just left after eight hours, then not enough might not be done. You have to hold yourself to those, to those actual goals. And I'm sure we've all been stuck there where like, especially people in the creative field, like I'm a writer too. And like, you know, you go on Facebook, you do your stuff and it's like, Oh my God, I thought I was going to go to bed at 10 tonight, but I think I'm going to go to bed at like two or three because the stuff isn't done or I'm not at the place where I wanted to be at the end of the night, at the end of the night. And sometimes we like, 
productively procrastinate too, right? Like we think, oh, well, I really need to research this before I write about it. Mm, you do, but you don't need to be able to write a book about that topic before you can, you know, like if, I, if I'm researching, oh, what was, you know, crime like in Toronto in the 1950s? I don't need to be able to write a whole book on crime in the 1950s if I'm just researching, you know, if I have a bank robber story, right, from the 1950s. It needs to be true, but you don't want to go down this rabbit hole of only doing research, right? And I think sometimes when people get a project that they've never done before that seems like super daunting, they're going to put way more research into something because they think they need that in order to be able to execute the project. So I think like when you're doing something for the first time that you've never done, that's kind of where you can make the mistake of like falling into the rabbit hole just based on the panic of the level of the project at the at the time oh yeah definitely definitely right and and i mean uh, it's also hard too when you're when you're working on stuff for yourself that doesn't necessarily have a deadline right so so comic con man i mean like you know chapter house ended up publishing it but when i first wrote it i wrote it just for me right because i wanted to get it out there i want i wanted to, to to write a novel so that's that's the first novel that i had ever written so i wanted to do it and it took me a lot longer than it probably should have. It took about a year and a half to write that. But if I'm being honest about it, it probably was only about four months worth of work. Like if I had written every single day, that book would have been, I would have written the first draft in four months. So it's one of those things too, where you need to, I mean, when, when, you know, the, the, the writer's mantra is always read every day, write every day. Right. And it really is true. Like, like, you know, consistent application of your skill will lead you to success. It will lead you to finishing a thing. So one of the things that I like to talk about is it, right? Like, um, because people often at, at, uh, at conventions or panels, they say, Oh, but you know, I have an idea, but I just don't have time to write it or whatever. Then I try to tell them like, just break it down to whatever is the base base component. And I, and I honestly think that that a paragraph ends up being our base component as a writer, right? So you stretch another pair, enough paragraphs to get a chapter, you stretch enough chapters together, boom, you have a book, right? right? So if you wrote 150 words every single day at the end of a year, you would have a book, but everybody doesn't write a book a year. But really, 50, 150 words, that's maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. So when people say like they don't have time to do something, that's possible that you might have a day where you don't have 20 minutes. But really, like, can you not watch 20 minutes for the TV? Not, you know, maybe you go to bed 20 minutes later. Maybe you wake up 20 minutes early, right? And it can be really hard if you have kids, if you have a hard commute, whatever. But anybody who is really, really serious about writing will find time. And it's way better to have consistent application of that skill. Like it's way better to do 150 words, you know, uh, once a day than to do 1500 words once a week because your characters won't stay as fresh. The whole story won't stay as fresh, but you keep doing those little, little bits. And essentially you, you have a book, right? Right. That's awesome. So comic con men, what, where did the idea for that come from? I had always sort of thought, because again, you you think about these things when you're a writer in a weird way, is that a comic convention is so, you know, because it's so crazy, there's so much going on that it's just an amazing setting for a heist. 
So I had had this idea for for a, a heist at a comic convention uh, story for a while, and I know that there's there were some other ones that kind of came out too. I think there's like a comic book about one that came out a while back, and I think there is a movie actually in production with John Malkovich right now about the same sort of topic. But the difference that I had wanted to to do was that was that they would just want to steal comics. Like they would be searching for stealing like these really high grade, you know, silver age keys kind of thing. Yeah. And that to me was hilarious, right? That, that these big, big comic book collecting nerds would want to sort of use all of, you know, the, the fanboyness that they have to be able to pull off this like hilarious heist in a comic convention. And as I started writing the book, I thought, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I can talk about conventions that are only sort of, of just kind of becoming mainstream that people kind of know about a couple of the members of the heist team are cosplayers right which enabled me to talk a lot about cosplay and how that works cool. and i talked about you know like uh they're they're backed by a comic shop of course so i got to talk about how comic shops work and and you know like and some of that is becoming more mainstream like i you know a lot of people are really down on big bang theory because like it's it's kind of got a little bit long in the tooth and it's a little bit like canned laughter kind of jokes but at the same time i find it hard to fault any show that has made it mainstream knowledge now that new comic book day is wednesday right that to me is amazing that now the average person knows when new comic books come out yeah yeah that's crazy so, so, so yeah, so I want to take all of those things and throw them into, into a novel. I'd wanted it to be like a fun, pulpier read, which is why it is about 200 pages long, which is shorter on a novel side, but still like, you know, within one of those pulp style, like I want people to be able to really kind of get into it, have a fun run with it and then be, be, be you know, just really be carried on through the story. And yeah, it was, it was, you know, a really great experience would probably suggest to anybody writing their first novel not to make it one that has so many characters. Uh, I really feel like, you know, I would probably, if I had to do it over again, I would not choose this as my first novel, but sometimes you just have to write whatever's the idea in your head right now. And large casts are much harder to maintain and handle um, than than a smaller cast with a with a much more reduced dramatis personae. But I think that, uh, that it ended up being a really good learning experience and, and just fun. Because like each character has an arc, each character has to be developed. They have to go on a journey, right? And sometimes you just need to think like, geez, like, has this person been in a chapter for a while? You got to like connect the dots back over, right? Make sure that, that that's all working properly. Also with finishing this book, I had another another sort of goal uh, that, that that I figured out. And, and it's a crazy goal, but I, I think one that is kind of good, right? So I'm 40 now. And I thought, you know what, if I stick with this writing thing, I might get kind of good at it. So uh, in, in Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, he talks about like when he picked up the banjo, he was like, man, if I keep playing this thing, by the time I'm an old man, I'll be pretty good at the banjo. And I thought that is exactly how writing works and really actually how all creative things work. But for me, I was like, no, no, no. Okay. So I'm, you know, at the time I was like 38 or 39, right. When I, when this came out. So if by the time I'm 60 years old, I've written 50 books, that 51st book should be pretty good. Right. 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 So, and, and I thought, you know what? I can count, say, say like a, like a graphic novel, right? Like a collection that can count as a book. Right. So, um, and then I'd written another, so, so I'm at three books so far 
working on the sequel to Comic Con Men, and then the the sequel to Northgard will be another. You know, so like the so that that'll be five books. So as long as I maintain that pace, by the time I'm sixty years old, I'll have written fifty books. That's amazing, and you're already ahead of the game because you you've gotten a bunch of them published already. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, well, and, and but no, no, I I I did want to set for myself the goal though that all of them don't have to be published, right? Because right? it's because I I can't necessarily control. I mean, I guess I can just stick them up on, on I mean, I can put them on Amazon, so I, I could publish them all. Uh, but if, if I go through a publisher, not every publisher is going to want to necessarily publish every single thing that I write. Right, right. Like, I have to assume that even Stephen King has things in his drawer that a publisher is like, well, you know, maybe this isn't the best kind of thing to put out, right? Yeah. So, uh, but I, I mean, I do think that just by having these sort of longer term goals, which I can break down into more digestible chunks, it, it just created a, a bit of a Zen moment for me, right? In that, oh, okay, well, you know, that 51st book, man, that's going to be really good. But in order to have this amazing 51st book, I have to write all of the other ones. And again, and, it, and it's not like I, I don't, like I'm not proud and don't feel that Comic Con is a great book, but it's my first book. Like, and I want to get better with every single thing that I actually write. It's the same thing with the comics that I write too. Like I try to do something different and try to, you know, uh, like I, I've been really into lately, like, um, I don't know, uh, you probably read, um, you know, say Thor or, uh, or Southern bastards like Jason Aaron. Stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know right? about it, you know, and, 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 uh, Brian cave on as well for, for saga. Yeah. So if you check out saga and check out Thor right now, those two writers and those artists do amazing, amazing stuff with four panel pages. Like, and it's hard to have a book that's mostly four panel pages. You really, really have to be able to convey really clear, clear imagery and clear writing. And so I've been trying to let, cause I, I wrote mostly now in like five to six panel pages, but I've really been trying to, to kind of condense that down. Not because I'm trying to write less, but just because there's something really great about the clarity of a four panel page that I love. And there's, there's a bit of a challenge there. Like you get to like sharpen your sword a little bit, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like when you're, because you're, you know, again, some, some pages you really do need nine panels right, right. now. I mean, an artist is going to shake their head at you. If you always give them nine panel pages on, on everything, like you need to have a variety, but I do, but I am amazed with the way that some of the writers and artists today are able to have like, and even like, th like th there's some pages that you would think, wow, I would never think of having a splash moment there. Right. With just this single, single beautiful image, but it really, really works for the story. So it's those kind of things that I'm always trying to be a bit more cognizant of. Well, and it's like what you were saying before about like breaking it down to like the, base thing i mean that's what you do is you make sure you see if there's anything extraneous that yes, you don't really need right? that you can put down to like four panels and it's amazing how much you can convey yeah. i guess in just in just four panels when like initially you might have thought it would have taken like nine panels to convey something and it's interesting too, because like, I don't get a chance to read it as, as many comics as I used to, right? Cause I used to just only consume. And there, there comes a sort of hard point where if you want to create, you can't consume in the same way. And you also don't enjoy it in the same way. Like, 
Mark Twain has, has this story called the two rivers where he talks about, cause he's a riverboat captain, right? Before he, he was, and I mean, while, but also like, you know, before he was really an established writer. And essentially he talked about how when, when a normal person just gets on the boat and goes down the Mississippi, all they see is the beauty and the curves of the water. And then that's what he saw too. When he first started the job as a riverboat captain, but as time went on, what he saw, he saw the part where he had to turn right because maybe it was a bit too shallow on the left or he had to like double check the, the gauge and it becomes work because you can see what the job is. So he can't see the beauty of the river anymore because he, now he knows all of the river's secrets. Yeah, it's like seeing the strings on the marionette. Right. And that's what happens once you start writing comics or writing books or working in film or painting, right? You can still enjoy works of art, but because you create, you don't consume in the same way. And, and frankly, when it comes to stuff like you actually don't even have time to consume in the same way. I love video games. Video games are way too long. I think the last really long game that I finished was Final Fantasy 15. Okay. I think it took me like a year to finish it because it's a 60 hour game and you just don't like, you just don't have that much time anymore. And to be honest, like I'm afraid of video games because I feel like if I get into a video game deep enough, it's just a time suck. Like I don't, I like video games, but I don't want a system because I'm afraid that like my day is going to be lost to a video game. I mean, I, I think that it's one of those things where it's tricky, right? Because I do think that if you're diligent enough, it can become a really, really good reward system, right? And they're like, have you hit your page count today? Have you drawn, you know, your number of panels? Okay. I'm going to play this video game for an hour as a way to decompress or, and, and again, even if you want to write in video games, you need to play video games, right. right? If you want to be a concept designer for video games, you need to play video games because you need to be able to at least have an idea of, of the kind of product that's out there. But as you said, you can't be playing video games more than you're writing, right? right. You can't be playing video games more than you're drawing. And if a game takes you 60 hours, 100 hours to finish nowadays because the stories are so in-depth and, and deep, then you have to figure out, okay, well, where am I going to find these 100 hours? Right. And it might mean that you get to play one game a year, <laughs> which, which also is why I love fighting games right. because – like. Any fighting game ever, I buy. If it comes out, it doesn't matter what it is, I, I will buy a fighting game. Because I can play it for 10 minutes, and I can put it down, and that's it, right? right? Exactly. It means that I'm garbage at it, right? Like, my Street Fighter Five win rate, I think, right now is something like 18%. Or so. But it doesn't matter, because I just get to, you know, you play something for 10 minutes, you use it as a reward for, for, for yourself, and it, and it goes really, really well. Right, right. Cool. That, like, that's awesome. Where do you get your drive and ambition from and the way that you you organize yourself? Because it seems like that comes from like a deeper place. Maybe it's like how your parents raised you and things like that, because not everybody is like, you know, I'm going to read books. I'm going to learn. I'm going to figure it out, like figure out how to be the most successful person I can possibly be. I'm going to write, you know, 50 books by the time I'm an old man and stuff. Where do you get that 
drive from that desire to sort of organize your life to be the most successful you can yeah i mean like i guess like, like a lot of it does come from from how i was raised right you know um my family was super super big on education and doing well in school right like that that was your job you know i remember when, when we used to go visit my my, my grandparents uh my grandfather uh would say hey how you do you were number one in school, right? It was all number one in school. You had, you had to be number one, right? And every day we'd be like, yeah, yeah, sure. We're number one in school, right? But, and and it isn't that you had to be number one. It was just a sense of like that, that this was a really, really important thing. Because my grandfather, like, so my, my dad's parents uh, came here from Italy after the war. My mom's parents uh, were, uh, were Scottish and Irish and then and, and they were from Canada. But, you know, both of, of my grandfathers, like they, they, you know, um, did not have a high school education and they loved learning. And for them, learning was like a passion because they didn't get to do it when they were younger because they had to go to work. They had to, you know, and it's, it's a really alien thing that we think of now. Right. In that, like, you know, my my grandfather like in Italy, he went to grade four and then he decided he didn't want to go to school anymore and he left and then he got a job working in like whatever yeah, right like labor like, laws wouldn't yeah, allow that right? Right? like it's not the way but to him it was so important to learn and and my scottish grandfather like he just he loved history and we talked old movies and it was just the the these sort of real sort of important passions that get instilled in you the other, the other thing that, that i had because i i was the the firstborn of, of all the grandkids right and all of my grandparents, like like all, all, all four of them, you know, they were such huge cheerleaders for me growing up. Like everything that I did was awesome. It didn't matter what it was. It was like, this is awesome. This is great. And my parents also were really, really supportive of any crazy thing that I wanted to do. So like if I wanted to do a painting class, I got to do a painting class. If I wanted to do, you know, like, like, like try some weird thing, like, like art thing or get like a puzzle book or get whatever, like you were always supported in that. And it, you know, if you ever wanted a book on something, you could, you know, like we would go to the library, we, we would get a book, like books were really important. You know, our, uh, like our houses had, had a huge library of stuff, had Encyclopedia Britannica on the wall. Like if you didn't know something, you looked it up. You didn't know how to spell a word. This is where the dictionary was, right? Like, and, and it was all of that that sort of, sort of pushes you not in a, in a like, man, you're going to be in trouble if you don't, you know, do well in school kind of thing, but just creates a, a bit of a love of learning and a love of books and, and, and of stories. And I think that's where a lot of that, that sort of started from, right? Because there are lots of things that I don't push myself in life enough. Like I never have been good at sports, right? I did soccer for a year as a kid. I did not go back. I did Taekwondo for three years as a kid. That is probably the extent of my, you know, doing sports. So now as an adult, I don't know how to do anything, right? Like when it comes to, I mean, like I, I can do them, but years ago, some friends said, Hey, you want to go to a batting cage? I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Right. No, no, no problem. And so like, I hadn't, I hadn't played baseball in forever. Cause as a kid, you play whatever he doesn't, doesn't matter. You don't care. Right. Yeah. And so we go to this batting cage and the slow pitch line is all filled up. So I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do that. I'll go, uh, what's this one? 70. No. Oh, okay. Perfect. Yeah. 70 kilometers an hour. Perfect. And in my head, I'm like, well, you know, 
like professional pitchers pitch at like 95 kilometers an hour. So I must be able to hit like a 70 kilometer an hour ball. So, you know, like the, the thing shoots the ball out with that, like, right. (laughs) And I swear the ball hit the back pad before I even swung. Like I had no idea what it was. And it was one of those things where I was like, well, man, I do not know how to to do anything because I did not do this as a kid enough. So I I think as best I managed to like just tip the ball once. And I was like, well, I'm going to stand the slow pitch line now. Right. And now like all these balls are flying at me and I, I better get to figure out what I'm doing. Exactly. And, and, and I do think that this is one of those weird sort of, sort of dichotomies that we start to strain people under too, is that we say you're either good at sports or you're good at art. And if you're not good at either of them, you should not do, do, uh, do anything. Right. And when we're kids, we let kids do whatever, right. You're not good at kicking a ball. It doesn't matter. Go out and have fun kicking a ball, right. You want to throw a Frisbee, go throw a Frisbee. You want to paint a picture, paint a picture. And somewhere along the lines, we tell people that if they're not good at one of those things, they should stop doing it. And that's super wrong. We should totally, totally not have that because the more and more that I sort of exercise now as an adult, the more and more that I get involved, like I did dragon boating for a number of years on like a team and I really, really liked it. But I feel like those physical things made me a better writer too. Like it fires your synapses a little bit better. It keeps you a little bit more diligent. It keeps you more on track. It gets you a better sleep, which is really, really key for any creative endeavors. And we've separated these things out way, way too much. And like physical tasks, like things that are hard physically tend to help you get rid of all your junk mentally. So you can like finally focus on something else, not what you have to do. You can be in the moment a little bit, a little bit more, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right. And so like, I was, so again, like I was never driven to do a ton of sports as a kid because I just didn't like it, but I was, you know, supported in any other sort of creative thing that, that I, that I wanted to do, whether it's sort of, um, you know, live theater or whether it's uh, I took piano lessons for a number of years, like just any sort of thing that, that you kind of did. And all of that kind of makes you a bit more of a well-rounded person. But when I, when I sort of finally land on, on, on something, like writing was really the the thing for me. Right. Um, I was also really fortunate over the years to have a number of really good mentors. Um, my, my high school drama teacher was just an amazing, amazing mentor. Uh, so, so, um, you know, devoted to like bringing out the best in kids, uh, bringing out, you know, sort of their creativity, teaching them down this creative path, the importance of story, uh, just, yeah, like, um, you know, amazing, Amazing, amazing stuff uh, from her. Um, I had a couple university professors that were really, really helpful in in that way too. And I think that uh, that that you know these mentors that you sort of find in life also help help bring you and drive. And now that I'm in a position to be able to sort of you know help and, and mentor people as well, that's one of the reasons why a few years ago the studio we started doing panels at conventions about you know things like productivity, about being able to draw a page a day about world building, about creativity, because we wanted to be able to sort of give back in, in the way that we have been supported throughout our career. You've been listening to Speech Bubble, back after this.
This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. At conventions, there's so many panels about breaking in and so many panels about like, so you want to be a comic book artist or you want to be a comic writer, but there's nothing about the in-between necessarily how you get there. It's all about like how you get in and then it's sort of like, well, good luck. The, the hard thing with the breaking in panels, too, is that what everybody will tell you now is that there's no one way to break in right, anymore, exactly. right? Like, yeah. because I mean, and, and it's in some ways, it's a little bit clearer for an artist than it is for a writer now, yeah. because an artist can keep practicing their craft and then they can go to a portfolio review to a convention. And then maybe if they're. You know, like if if uh, the reviewers are excited, they can, you know, offer them a, a gig, right? Like all that kind of stuff is a bit more of a clear path. But really, even that is not a guaranteed path anymore. So when it comes to, to sort of honing your craft, I always try, try to tell people too, like your goal is not to compare yourself against other people. Your goal is to compare yourself against yourself and that you should always be doing a better job than you just last did. Like right now, you and I could come up with a comic. We could draw like stick men. We could take a bunch of pictures of like a three panel comic. We could put it on Instagram and look, boom, we're comic book creators, right? right. Like the, the technology has enabled us to completely bypass the gatekeeping of old, right? Because you can just do it now. And that's what people need to sort of, sort of do, right? If it's your goal to be able to write Spider-Man and to draw Spider-Man, that's a very, very different goal, right? And you need to still create your own stuff to get there, but it isn't that you can just decide one day, well, I'm gonna draw Spider-Man, right? I feel like finally, based on like the way that the comic industry is going and like how we have so many great independent books like Saga and uh, Monstrous, God Country, those sorts of things. I think the idea that like you're not legit until you uh, are working on a mainstream book is starting to fall away. I think so, and I mean like, Part of it, too, it's a super weird conversation that I have sometimes when people think that comics doesn't mean things like um, like uh, Reina Telegamer's books, right? Like ghosts and sisters and drama, right? Like literally the best selling comic books like in North America, right? Like New York Times bestseller list month after month after month, but not necessarily considered comics right. in the same way as, you know, like floppies about, you know, men in, in tights punching each other, right? right? Because you have you have the graphic novel, which yes, is like right? higher like, art, right? But 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 I mean, it really isn't. It's, it's, it's all just comics, right. right? It's all just, it is a weird quirk of, of the history of the industry that, you know, when we think of comics, we think of superhero comics, right? Like that's the equivalent of going into a record store and 90% of everything in the store is heavy metal and every other musical genre is like the tiny 10%, right. you know, cause comics is a medium. It's not, 
a genre, right? Exactly. Right? Like, so it, it's it's a weird kind of way that that way. Um, now, mind you, a lot of us, it is through superheroes that we learn to love the medium or introduced to the medium. So for like, you know, even though I want to be able to tell lots of different stories in comics, do I still love? writing superheroes of course i love writing superheroes are the stories that i loved right what got you in initially like what did you love about comics what what kinds of comics did you like um so yeah so as as a kid i had grew right Mm -hmm. you know i had uh spider-man and really like ghost rider though those are like the three comics that i that i tried to grab every as much as i could but the thing is that like so again this is one of those weird things where you sound like back in my day but really it was like this back in the day You, you didn't have uh like a pull box at a comic shop and you probably got your comics from a convenience store. So I used to go v- visit my grandfather, right? My, so this is my Scottish grandfather. We would go to his house and he would give us a $2 bill. My, my brother and I got a $2 bill each cause we had $2 bills back at, back in the day. And we would go to the, the local convenience store and a $2 bill provides a conundrum to a kid at that age, right? Because either you could get a ton of candy for $2 or you could get a comic and some candy because at the time comics would have been like 95 cents Canadian, I think. Right. You know, but there was like, you know, a lot of those five cent candies, like big feet or like Swedish fish or something like that. So you can get like a good, good chunk of candy. So you had to figure out what you wanted, but convenience stores, they just like got comics kind of willy nilly. Maybe some convenience stores got the comic you like, maybe they didn't. So you never were able to guarantee that you would get the books that you would like. Now, Spider-Man was a pretty, even bet, right? You were probably going to be able to get Spider-Man when you wanted, but it might be sold out. Like it isn't that the convenience store probably would, would get it though. Grew though. And uh ghost Rider, though, those not every convenience store had those by like at all. Yeah. That's very specialty comic, especially grew. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it was not something cause grew also, I think was like maybe a buck 25 when everything else was 95 cents. Like it was a little bit higher price point too. So you even had to, Oh man, this is, I'm, I'm losing five, you know, like gummy candies. What am I going to do? Yeah. And so that's how you sort of got your collection. But because also people didn't have a ton of comics, what you did, and I I pray and hope that kids still do this today because it's kind of awesome, but you used to go over to each other's house, like your friend's house, because they had different comics that you did, and you would read their comics. So that way you kind of knew what what was going on in the universe because if you didn't have X-Men, but your friend did, you could go over and you could read X-Men. Like that's where I first, you know, uh, read... uh, uh, some of the the Avengers stuff, I think, it was at a friend's house, right? Nice. And but like the comic, the one singular comic that made me go, "Wow, this is awesome!" is um, Uncanny X Men two hundred and eleven. And it's the one where Wolver- it's just Wolverine's face on the cover and has the ripped mask and it has like the border around oh, yeah, of like yeah, yeah. all the different Marvel characters for the 25th anniversary of Marvel, right? That, but so my brother got that in the uh, treasure chest at a Red Lobster when we were there once, and it is uh, part two, I think, of the Mutant Massacre. And it is amazing story. Like to this day, I just, I think it's so, so vivid, so visual. It is so many people getting killed. We had no idea what was going on, right? The X-Men are fighting the Marauders. There's one point where, where a Colossus fights Riptide, like because Kitty Pride has been hurt by Harpoon. Colossus jumps over to save her and Riptide steps in the way. And he, and Riptide's throwing out all these ninja stars and they're sticking in Colossus's head and Colossus is he's not being slowed down at all. Right. And, and, and he, and he says, you know, Riptide says, well, you know, my, 
my stars can can like cut even you down to size my robust Russian friend and Colossus grabs Riptide by the neck and says no you're wrong and we are not friends and snaps Riptide's neck and just drops him to the ground and I remember thinking this was the craziest <laughs> thing as a kid right that's insane and it's these moments that really stick with you and it's those kind of things that like and again it like it, it's hard I, I, you can't always set out to write moments like that, but I hope that like I'm creating some holy cow moments for people and they remember these kinds of things, right? right? That That's one of the reasons why I love superhero comics. Right, right. So how did you get involved with a North Guard and Chapter House? Because, I mean, North Guard... Unless you're Canadian and you know sort of Canadian superhero history, it's kind of a tough sell for people. Yeah, like I, so, um, I at the time had been working as an editor uh, on the Captain Canuck book. Okay. So Chapter House had hired me for that, and I was, I was editing the, the I edited the first um, six issue, like like the first trade really of, of of the relaunch of Captain Canuck. So Calman and I had been you know talking about some of the world that he was creating and a lot of like the uh, the ideas that, that that he had with like his his big story. And um, Chapter House had come to us and said, hey, you know, we purchased the rights to Northgard. We'd really like to make him a character in the universe. What do you guys have? What do you think? So we had thought about some different ideas and some ways that we could bring him in. And we wanted to have like a bit of a, a bit of a fake out as well. Because we thought, oh, well, what if what if Michael creates the Uniband and Michael creates Northgard and and then he is Northgard for a bit. And then, you know, like uh, then Phil goes off into his own series. And that's how I, I was able to sort of to sort of, you know, work on on getting to work on our North Guard. Now, the interesting thing about North Guard, so for, for those of you who haven't read it, because it's not necessarily the easiest thing to find, I think you can still get PDFs of it on Mark's website, I, I think. Yeah, I, I he's, think you he's can got do PDFs that. on Mark's yeah. website, but I, I don't know if anyone necessarily even knows who Mark is yeah, well, fully. I, I, I mean, like, like, certainly uh, Canadian comics book people do, right? Yeah, Canadian comics people you know, totally do, yeah. Um, but so, so the original North Guard ran I think from, I want to say 82 to 87. Right. And when Mark had first come up with the idea of the character, he, he, he had talked to me once about it and he had said that he wanted to sort of like approach it as if Alan Moore was writing Captain Canuck, right? So he wanted to like take the idea of Captain Canuck and put it into a bit more of, more of a hyper-realistic world, right? So Captain Canuck is a comic book in the Northgard world. Yeah. And one of the things that, that the original Phil Wise does is he really wants to be a hero, but he's not actually very good at it, right? So he has the desire and the drive to be a hero, but he needs help from a lot of outside sources to be a hero. And so when, when we rebooted it, we had like, like, you know, one of my ideas was that I wanted to make him a very reluctant hero. So he's a much more competent individual in terms of heroics than, than their source material, but he doesn't have the desire and drive to be a costume hero in the way that that marks you know Northgard was so you sort of flipped it yeah yeah and and like but like we wanted to kind of stick with the the same themes that mark had had explored like what makes a hero right um canada u.s relations right like uh yeah it was know. very like gritty in tone for yes. its time yeah yeah definitely right so we wanted to take all of that kind of stuff and then repackage it and put it out in because i I, I do think that the thing with reboots is you need to sort of maintain a bit of integrity with the source material, but 
only thematically, right? Not in, in, in like, you know, a very specific, this has to be exactly how it is way. So, so yeah. So, but I mean, it was, you know, like when, when, uh, that first, uh, script had been sent off to, to, to a Mark and a Gabriel, we we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed. We thought, Oh man, I hope that, hope they're happy with what it was and hope they really liked it, but they did, which is great. And they were really happy about it. So that was awesome. Really, really. And so, so from there, yeah. So, the, uh, that was a four issue, uh, arc is the first one. Um, always had it planned as, as two arcs. Um, and then with all the other creator owned stuff that I'm working on now and with the novel, I'm going to be working on the second and third arc, uh, with a co-writer with, uh, with, uh, Aaron Feldman. So Aaron and I have been developing, uh, the next uh, couple series. Um, some of your listeners might know uh, Aaron from, uh, he edited the Toronto comics anthology. Yeah. He yeah. was on uh, our show actually excellent, him excellent. And Allison yeah. when they edited the Toronto comics anthology. So yeah, you can check out him and his co-editor, Allison O'Toole. Uh, they went on to edit a lot of books for for chapter house yeah 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 so so uh, allison's editing us on this and aaron and i have come up with some like pretty crazy ideas for volume two and three that i think everybody's really really gonna dig that's awesome you know? so yeah so w- we had our whole big arc that we had wanted to think about and we had really also like when i had first done that first arc i wanted to use it as a way to expand the chapter verse right because it really is the fr- it was the first sort of uh expansion out from the Captain Canuck series. So we wanted to to hint at a much larger universe. And one of the biggest things that Calum and I had come up with was having Fleur de Lis, like Manon Deschamps, not be a sidekick, but be Northgard's boss and be head of this paranormal activity containment team packed. Right. And that's been one of the characters that's been the most fun to write. A really, really great uh, fan feedback from it. Like people love director Deschamps, so that's really great to see. Um, and so it's like she's kind of our, like our, the chapter house Nick Fury in a lot of ways. Right. Right? And you don't really find out that she is the chapter house Nick Fury until like later in the Captain Canuck yes. series and once you start expanding into, into this pact thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So like a lot of great, great stuff for that. It, it, it's been a lot of fun getting getting to work in a world and, and expand out that world and being part of sort of the ground level creation of all that. Like that's been really, really great. It's also been a lot of fun to get to work with Calman on it because we're studio mates, right? So, you know, getting to see him really, really uh, create this Captain Canuck world and, and really expand on, you know, uh, a lot of his original ideas, but also build on, you know, some of Richard's original like themes and and, and uh, concepts for Captain Canuck as well. Because again, staying true to that source material has been really, really important for us all. Right. That's Richard Conley, the creator of yes. Captain Canuck. Yeah. So did you get involved with Chapter House through your relationship with Kalman? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kalman had, you know, said, you know what, I, I, uh, really think that Anthony would be a good match as an editor on this. Uh, and yeah, it just really, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of interest and get to get to do that. And from that, of course you get to do other things and it expands out and you get to practice and, you know, hone your craft. So now, now we're at the point where this was kind of a, a wild thing that I realized, but like I've written nine issues of Northgard so you know we've like volume two hits the stands i think end of september beginning of of october is is the first issue of volume two perfect but uh but aaron and i've been working on volume three lately so i've written nine issues of northgard and there actually were only eight issues originally 
Wow. So at this point, I've written like, you know, the most Northgard issues of anybody, I guess. I guess that's how that works. Yeah, right? that's amazing. Like, so now you're like breaking new ground and taking it where it's sort of never been. Yeah, yeah, which is which is kind of cool. Right? Like, like yeah. there's some there's some really neat stuff with that. What's the response been? Like how is it selling? What's what's going on with Northgard? Are people really digging it? Yeah, I mean like you know I've had uh, a lot of fans come to me. I was in Chicago last year and I had some fans from the Chicago area come up to me and also some fans that had made the trip from Winnipeg to to get books signed. Like that that, that was pretty crazy to me. Wow. That that had kind of like approached it out. Um but no, like the way that we sort of put it all is is right you know x files meets james bond right like we wanted a kind of a different flavor for north guards so there's there's some pretty funky stuff with it and it's a really great book that you can read it on its own but it's an excellent excellent companion piece to captain canuck like i mean if you're if you're spending eight bucks a month picking up captain canuck and north guard you, you can't really go wrong with that right and do you like working with uh, chapter house and uh, what fatty's got going on like how do you feel being part of this sort of resurrection of Canadian comics that we got going on. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's been a really sort of interesting process, right? To get to see, you know, how, uh, how like, the, this whole universe is building and being part of that, those people that, that are building the universe, right? M- my uh, podcast mate uh, uh, for, for Storybeater, uh, Andrew Wheeler, is, is a writer as well, and he's the writer on Freelance uh, for Chapter House. So getting to work with, uh, like, you know, getting to see uh, his work on that as well has been really great. Um, and we've just had tremendous uh, fan feedback on, on, on that book as well. So it's just been, it's been pretty, like, uh, it's been a pretty wild ride at times, but I think that everybody is super excited about, you know, Chapter House and having a Canadian company putting out a superhero universe and putting out monthly books. Right, right. Because right? it's something that we really haven't had for a while. Hmm. And, you know, like people are really supportive of that. And they're hugely ambitious. Like they got a lot of books coming out every month and sometimes like bi-monthly, like every t- every two months. Yeah, I mean, like the, the way that they had sort of wanted to frame it, I think. And again, I'm not writing all the books like I write, you know, just sort of mine. Right. right. So, exactly. uh, but I think that the way that they had wanted to frame it was two books come out each month. So that's why there, there's, there's kind of four issues a year. Like, like one arc comes out a year. Right. So it's, so it's kind of like a television season, right? So you pick up, you know, just that, but then there's nine, no, sorry. Uh, then the, there's six different books out every year, right? Because yeah, four issues, three, three times a year times two kind of thing. Right. right. Uh, and then pitiful human lizard is the seventh book because Jason does that. Like it's, it's creator owned, but it's, but it's in the chapter versus well yeah so really for kind of like you know less than 10 bucks a month you get to find out everything that the entire universe is doing and because each story happens kind of after another there's different stuff that kind of ebbs and flows right so for those of you uh that read agents of pact that then blended into the the captain canuck series that's out right now for those of you who picked up uh, the captain canuck series you'll see that like you know you, you saw that a pretty crazy things happens to Northgard in, in, right. in issue one uh and that's where we where we pick up from in 
in our issue one of Northgard. So everybody's able to kind of have a really good idea of what the entire universe is doing. Did Mark ever tell you the story that the the Uniban was like inspired by like a bike lane that he used to that he used yeah. to wear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's a crazy story, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you never know where, where these things are gonna come from. But like, yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool to like have you in. Like, how do you see your career now? Like, you probably never imagined that you'd be working in comics after being such a comic fan. Like, were you familiar with Northgard prior to being uh, involved in it? A little bit, partially because there was that stamp series of yeah, Canadian the stamp heroes, series right? Is where I first yeah, saw yeah. Him. So, so like, there, there's that too. Uh, but I so. I'll tell you what was really a wild moment for me, right? Okay. Um, was seeing a comic that I did in the previews guide. Wow. Right? Because like, as so I mean, for those of you listeners who don't know, the way that comic book stores order their comics is there's a large catalog from the comic books distributor, which is Diamond uh, Previews, right? And as a kid, like if you didn't... Like, like, so let's say that you didn't necessarily have enough money to buy all the comics that you wanted, right? For a buck, and I think this now it costs four bucks, but at the time when I was collecting comics, previews guide costs a buck. You bought the previews guide, and you kind of had an idea of what was going on in a lot of the universes, and you could kind of see, and you could see like covers for everything, so you could follow your favorite artists, you could do different stuff, right? But it was this really like cool thing, and it was a couple months ahead, too. Yeah, yeah, it was two months ahead, right? And so to get something that I did in that guide, it's pretty neat. Like it's a pretty neat sort of moment for me. Right. That's awesome. And to see an idea that I had in my head, get made real by an artist, get turned into something by a publishing company, get printed out, get put on a comic book stand, get sold at a comic book store by somebody who then brings that book to me and asks for a signature at a convention. That is a wild, wild ride. Was the jump from prose to comics tough because you'd always been a comic fan yeah i mean like it it wasn't because i had written movie screenplays before and i'd written play uh scripts before so because of that like you know because basically there's no standard format for comic book scripts um i tend to write in what's known as full you know uh script format not not say marvel method which is more just describing what happens on a single page artist interprets it and then you kind of put the words in later for dialogue but but mostly uh, like it, it, it was it was a pretty good transition that way because I, I kind of knew and had known what to expect and also because I was a writer I was always just you know so I, I had you know actually purchased like a book of comic book scripts there's a couple of different books that had been out on the market um, you know that, that that's like I think it was in like late late 90s early 2000s some of them got put out so I had had some you know books there's an Alan Moore book about like writing comics and just like different ways to kind of digest um, and like to see people's methods and now like with the special editions, sometimes you see like comic strips in the back of the actual comic yeah which is really neat to see that creative process like for me anyway right like not for everybody for that it's it's pretty neat to see how people do do different things um so so that was really really wild and at first, like, so you don't ever set out to sort of say, okay, well, I'm going to be the guy who, who like writes Spider-Man, right? Like, cause that, but what you just want to do, you want to be able to write and do like your best, your best ideas possible. And 
if you know you get a chance to keep doing more and more work and you get the chance to keep coming up with better and better ideas you get you know i'm very fortunate to be working with amazing artists uh at the raid studio as well on this so in addition to the two stories that i mentioned already you mentioned the the anthology primer that, that you picked right. up so the pirate story in that here there be monsters is uh a, a story that i'm working on with eric vetter right and uh eric uh is uh, a concept uh, designer for digital extremes but he also is an artist in his own right, worked on Udon stuff. He's done stuff for Street Fighter comics. He's done stuff for Darkstalkers. And uh, we had this idea for this, you know, uh, kids graphic novel, like skewing a little, a little bit younger, like maybe like nine to nine to 14 age range, right? About these pirate monster hunters. Right. So that's a very rich world that I'm getting to work in. And so now I feel like it's, it's like I have this embarrassment of riches, right? You're working on all these ideas you're doing all this stuff it's great great things and if one day this leads to even increased opportunities and getting to maybe work you know like in big superhero stuff for marvel and dc i will you know obviously like it would be a childhood dream to get to write spider-man and right? all this kind of started because of how you were involved in comic book journalism that was how i kind of i guess got my foot in the door but but that path isn't necessarily the path that everybody will will sort of choose right right? it was one of those things where because because when you're writing uh, comic book journalism you're not writing comic books right you're just writing about them yeah so uh like you know i had i had kind of written my my own stuff before and i had ideas for things that, that i would do but you know choosing to do the journalism was a way that i could just practice my craft of writing and it also enabled me to stick to deadlines because you know if you're writing for yourself it's sometimes very hard to maintain the deadlines that you sort of need in terms of consistent productivity so i ended up having a weekly column and then i shifted it to bi-weekly when i was just like okay well you know i I need to kind of take on some different work Uh, but having a regular deadline and having a set number of word count and having set number of topics you need to come up with that was really really helpful in sort of diligently training myself for the freelance life right for sure for sure because that's discipline right there yeah um was it hard to break into comics journalism I think that it's one of those things where for me, I had uh, friends that I knew that, that, that were connected with Comic Book Daily. So I said, you know what? You guys don't have an opinion column. Like, like essentially what I, what I had done was I had looked at the site, done my research and thought, okay, well, you know what they're missing? They're missing this. So I'll offer to do this. Like, like I pitched the idea of it and I was hired and, and it worked r- really well. Right. And yeah, it, it enabled me enormous creative freedom. Um, I, like I, I made sure that it was a paying gig because not a lot of comics journalism is right. a paying gig, but I knew that it wouldn't, like, you know, there's no way that it was going to mean that I could quit my day job. Yeah, right? it's not going to sustain you. Um, but I did actually manage to maintain that I have the rights 
to the articles that I put out. Oh, cool. So because of that, I was able to put out a book of my columns, right? Which is the first book that I, that I published. And, and when I had been working on that, I, um, I wrote a new intro and conclusion for each of the things and it enabled me to put them out as eBooks for myself. So it enabled me to kind of figure out how Amazon, you know, Kindle direct publishing works and all that kind of stuff. And so like more and more, what I find is that, you know, you don't need permission to do anything anymore, right? You can just go and do them yourself, do it. And once you have a thing, you need to be able to show people that you've done a thing before and it's showing people that you can do something, whether it's a book or whether it's a comic or whatever, that will help you get more work because you've proven that you've already done a thing, right? Like somebody might, might read comic comment and think that it's total garbage, right? But... I still wrote a whole book. Right. And if somebody needs me to write a book, if they have a choice between somebody who has written a book before and somebody who has not written a book before, they'll pick the person who has written a book before. Right, for sure. Right? Because you just have established that skill at doing it. And that's the kind of thing that when it comes to to sort of working in comics, right? Like, you know, when people say, well, how can a writer break into comics? It, it is harder for a writer than it is for an artist. But what you should do is you should, you know, write, like figure out what you want the story is and write that. Then you should save up as much money as you possibly can. And you should go to artists in artist alley uh, at conventions and you should find somebody whose style you like, and you should see if you can offer them, you know, like a page rate, right? right. You pay, pay an artist because an artist, if they, if they're drawing your book, they, that means that they're not doing something else. So they have to have at least something. They have to have some sort of payment to come through. Right. right. Then you end up, you know, saving a bit more money and you get it printed. And even if it's an eight page, you know, like it's eight pages and stapled together, it's still, you still shown that you can write a comic. And that's the thing that you shop around. You, you know, send it in the mail to editors, you make a PDF of it and you email at it. Like there's a weird thing that people don't actually know about, but Valiant actually has an open submission process. Right. You just need to like email Valiant, like, like the, I think it's like info at Valiant entertainment or something like that. Email them like a general, Hey, I'm, I, I'm a writer. Here's a PDF of, of a comic that, that I wrote, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I hope you enjoy kind of thing. Yeah. It doesn't mean the Valiant's going to phone you back, but there are lots of companies out there that that are looking for writers and artists and you need to just get your work out there and show it but it does mean that you need to do it yourself first like nobody's going to pay you off like right away you know because i mean even even though Northgard was my first comics work i had written other stuff like i could show that i had had a body of work that i had done on my own right and like you know through through amazon ebooks i had made money at it but not like I mean, I think I, I think, you know, when I, when I was hired for Northgard, I might've made a hundred dollars off some of my books, right. right in right. terms of profit. It's not like I was this, you know, big fancy writer that got hired, but right. I could show that I had completed something, right. Right. That I had had a series of successes at maintaining deadlines at putting out product. And that's the kind of thing that you sort of need as well. Wow. Nice. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, cool. It's, it's, it's so cool to hear people's path. And I think you're a guy who's sort of given 
the most insight on the craft that we've ever had on, on, on Speech Bubble. So I, I thank you for that. That's great. It, I like how you organize your thoughts and, and get everything together. I think it, this is like the most clear that anyone's ever been in terms of how uh, you get into the industry and like make things happen and be disciplined and that sort of thing. So that's awesome. Um, is there anything else that you want to uh, tell our listeners about before before you go? Um, I mean, one of the things, so w one of my sort of projects right now, so uh, on the RAID website, which I did look up, it is uh, RAID.world, okay. right? So you can check out our, our new website. But um, over the next, I probably in October, I'm going to be launching a blog on there uh, about productivity and, and productivity in, 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 in creative industry. Right. So it'll apply to writers, it'll apply to artists, but just in general productivity. And I'm going to be talking with the other people in, in the studio as well and having their tips and tricks. But one of the things that I've sort of, sort of found is that there are a lot of books out there about productivity and about the kinds of things that you can do. So for example, I don't know if you, if you've read the book tools of the Titans. Yeah, I've heard of it. Right? You're right. So, so Timothy Ferris is that guy who wrote uh, Four Hour Work Week. Yeah, right? yeah, that guy. And he has a really, really popular blog as well, where he gets all these famous people on. Like they might be sports stars or business people or uh, writers or actors or whatever. Just like people who are like you know Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, like everybody has has been on this on this podcast, and they've talked about about how they've been successful and their path to productivity. Right. And it's really interesting because everybody has some different opinions. So maybe somebody gets up early or somebody gets up late or somebody goes for a walk first thing or somebody does yoga or somebody drinks green tea or somebody does an ice bath or what, whatever sort of thing that they do. And then they talk about how this helps them be successful. Right. But what's fascinating about it is that uh, so Tool of the Titans is, is like the best of, of that podcast condensed in. So, but what's fascinating is that the, is that the way that people talk about these things, they say, okay, so you get up early and then you have the same breakfast every day and then you have green tea and then you write for four hours and then you go for a jog and then, and then the rest of the chapter will be about the importance of getting up early or how green tea is good for you or you go for a jog. But what doesn't get expanded upon is that one little sentence in the middle that says, I wrote for four hours because ultimately you need to do the thing, right? All the green tea in the world will not make you a better writer. If you're not actually writing how many words you finished, did you write today? That is what actually matters. So I have a, a, an app that I use called coach me. There, there's lots of apps like this, but coach me. I like, cause it just has a really simple interface and I can set daily goals. So it's four daily goals that I set for myself. Did I read today? Did I write today? Did I exercise today? Did I eat healthy today? Those are the four things. And I just check. And then I can look and I can see, oh, look, I haven't been to the gym in this long or, oh, look, I've managed to write five days in a row this week or, oh, I'm, and it's just, it's really, really simple because you either did write or you didn't. There's no, there's no in between, right? Either you wrote and you did the thing or you didn't and you did not do the thing, right. which is fine. Like if you don't want to write, you don't have to write. Nobody's forcing you to write. But if you want to write, if you want to draw, if you want to create 
then you need to do those things. Right, right. Basically, what I've been trying to think about and what I like to do with the blog is to sort of take that basic concept of really getting people to think about the thing and not as much about all of the, the extraneous stuff around it. Like all that stuff is really important in the sense that it, it's, it, it might be what personally motivates somebody. So green tea might make somebody a better writer, but it's more that that's their trigger for actually doing the thing. Right. Green tea in and of itself doesn't make people better writers. Otherwise everybody would just green tea and be writing books left, right and center. Right. So that's the, the thing that I'm, that I'm really kind of, you know, interested about now about, you know, procrastination, productivity and getting people to do the thing. And even for myself, right? Like, I mean, I, I think that, that I do pretty well with managing to do the thing. And my mantra is read every day and write every day. But even, even I don't manage to maintain that all the time. What about balance? Like you're at a point where you're running multiple things at once, doing multiple things at once. You're doing the thing, but you're doing different projects within the thing. So how do you make sure that all those projects get done and you're not going in 50 million different directions? So this is one of the things that that I, I think where simple math actually helps you out, right? So I also have, uh, my my wife and I have a uh, beautiful eight, year, eight uh, month old daughter right now. So having an infant also adds like, you know, a, a lot to, to, to your schedule. But basically, like I said, you know, 150 words a day, means you have a book at the end of the year. Right. So when, when I look at projects, I've looked at myself, okay, this is how much time I can delegate to each project. And then, you know, that's when that will be done. Right. But you have to be really, really diligent then if, especially if you, you take on more work, right? And at times we all take on a bit more than we actually should, right? But if you have a manageable number of projects and you know, okay, uh, in order to, to get this comic script done, I will need to write one page of comic every day for a month, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to take me two hours or one hour, whatever it takes you, right? So you know that. Or in order to get this novel done, I need to make sure that I dedicate, you know, a thousand words uh, a day to this. And that's going to take me an hour. But if a thousand words takes you two hours and you can't, you know, do like two hours a day, then you have to say, okay, it's going to take me twice as long to write the book. So this is when the book will get done. So you just kind of figure out how fast you can write and legitimately figure it out like that. That's one of the things which is good in the sense that I now know how long it takes me to write a page of comic script. And I know how long it takes me to write a thousand words. And you figure that out by like timing yourself while you're doing it. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. So that way you know how long a job is going to take you, right? right? Because if you accept a job and if somebody says, okay, well, I need this in two days, if you know it can't take you two days, then you need to say, okay, well, I can't do it in two days, but I can do it to you in four days. Is that fine? Because if you just accept a job that you know you can't meet the deadline for and you just miss the deadline, then you're the guy who missed the deadline. Right. Whereas if you try to negotiate up front and say, look, this is actually not a possible deadline, I will meet it for you later. Right. right. And that it, it's sort of that sort of self-realization and knowledge that I'm always sort of pushing people to 
to accept, right? Right, like, and that's what time management really is. Like, I think for a lot of people, time management is like this vague concept. They don't know what practical time management actually looks like and how you do it. No, and, and, and like, you know, for me, like, it's so my, my prime writing time used to be in, in the mornings. Like, early in the morning, I would get up and I would have my, my butt in that seat every... 7:30 a.m. till 8:30 a.m. I always wrote, always, always, always. And now my my daughter gets up around six. We have some daddy daughter time for a couple hours, right? You know, uh, and it's it's awesome, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But but I had to shift my writing time now to in the evenings. And that's been different for me to sort of train myself because I've, I've always been more of a morning person. Right. So having that kind of shift, but again, you, you kind of make it, you make it work. Right. Cause I do have the option. I could get up at five and write for an hour. Right. That would still be writing in the morning and all that. But for, for me, I like, I mean, I, I do like, you know, sleep as well. So that that's good. Right. Uh, and it's just having a, an idea about, how much writing you can get done in the time allotted. And when you know how fast you are, then you know if you can take on a job or not. Right, right, right exactly. And then finally, you have a podcast too. Yes, yeah, yeah. With Andrew Wheeler. It is. Writer of freelance. Uh, sort of connected to the productivity thing in the sense that you you break down stories and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so uh, it's called Story Beater. Uh, you can search us on iTunes. We're on Libsyn as well. Um, you should be able to find us on Stitcher. And so um, it's broken into, into three sections, right? What we're writing and we talk about what we're writing right now uh, we talk about what we're reading uh, as well and then we talk about a very specific work and just lately because like we ended up sort of shifting and talking about more pop culture stuff because also that was where we found a lot of our fan base was coming from so uh the last episode we dissected the defenders series right. on netflix the episode before that we talked about the latest spider-man movie right um so really because of all the comics movies we've been talking a lot about comics movies for a long time now but it isn't always that in october we'll do our halloween episode and think we'll talk about the uh, werewolf in, in fiction but I'll, I'll, so a lot of what we do is we try to have sort of like a breakdown about what what sort of works story-wise and why some of these things are resonating with the public what really works you know in terms of uh, a pop culture piece of art where we feel some of the character arc has gone um but but we also do like you know in terms of what we're writing we were pretty heavy about the productivity and the and the whole you know sort of mantra for the podcast is write every day read every day right like we want people to do this we we hope that aspiring writers listen to podcasts we hope that you know established writers listen to the podcast we hope the people who are just interested in the craft listen to the podcast so that that's always uh sort of interesting it, it's 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 uh, just andrew and i but we have know, something like 58 episodes now oh, right that's pretty so, awesome. yeah it's been and it's, it's been it's been a fun ride and i tell you in terms of productivity if once a month you have to report on a podcast what you've been writing that keeps you on track as well right because i can't just say oh i've done nothing in a month you know you know you need to report on something so you manage to do it because at this point you have a following you know you have listeners you know you have 
people who expect things from you. Exactly. Well, and also, I just don't want to look look like a goof if Andrew has a lot of really good stuff that he's been writing, and I'm like, oh, I did nothing all month. Uh, right? That's awesome. I watched Netflix and ate Cheetos. Right? Like, I can't do that. I have to, you know. Do you ever bring what you wrote in and like show each other on the podcast? Or uh, no, I mean, like, so we like, I mean, uh, for, for a lot of that stuff, we'll definitely text back and forth about, oh, I'm yeah. working on this, working on that, and also like Andrew is one of the people who who I would definitely consider like, like I mean, he's a friend and a colleague, but also he, he's been like a really good mentor to, to me as well. Yeah. Cause your, your mentors, you, you find them everywhere, right? Like that's the thing. So it isn't necessarily somebody who's like, has to be an old wise and man, right? Like yeah. it, it can be really anybody that you find along the way and, uh, and that, that help you just be a better, you know, creative. Right. Um, so yeah, so that, that, like that's been great. Um, all the stuff with the studio has been really exciting and, uh, we're going to be putting out, you know, more anthologies. There's going to be more stuff coming out from the studio. So hope everybody does go check out the, the new website. Cause there's some pretty, there, there, there's some pretty great stuff that that's coming down the pipe. Yeah. Raid is like, somehow they're like, wait, we can do this ourselves. We don't need to rely on people. Like we have writers, we have artists. That's what Gibson was saying that like at some point along the line, uh, Ramon who's sort of like the studio daddy, uh, said you can, you can, we can do this. Like we have our own power and we can put out our own stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, we, uh, you know, we just been, and we've been talking about it forever. And Ramon finally just said, look, we're doing it. Here's the deadline for scripts. Right. Boom. Right. And from then on, we, we kind of just had it. Everything kind of rocked. Around. I mean, like, like, you know, obviously, you know, comic books are like sausage and that sometimes you don't want to see how they get made kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, it was, we definitely had, uh, like a, a bit of a bumpy road at times, but we got everything, but everything got done and everything was perfect. And like, you know, everybody really, really, you know, like, uh, pitched in and did everything that they possibly could to make sure this was a success. And Ramon did a crazy amount of work to ensure that, that, that this would come off without a hitch. And, and it really did. I mean, you know, we had it ready to go at fan expo, which was amazing. Uh, really excited with how the product turned out. We've had a lot of really great feedback on, on the stories in there. So yeah, very, very happy with it all. What I like about it is that like, nobody is above the project, whether you're like a mainstream comic artist, you're Francis Manipal, you're Ramon Perez, or, you know, you're, you're doing more indie stuff. Nobody was above the project. Everybody put the work in and actually did it. There's no ego going on. They just all wanted to do it. Yeah, no. And well, and the thing is that like, that's always the way that the studio has been, right? Like when I first joined the studio, like I remember working on, so, so I was also writing for a, a, a radio show and I was literally like writing a piece on like, I think like superhero dick and fart jokes like it was just like like it was just one like random thing and and francis right it came to me he's like oh well, what are you working on I'm like oh i'm doing this article let's blah, blah blah this but the thing was all of those everybody in the studio was genuinely interested in what i was working right. on like it wasn't they were just trying to be nice or whatever they were like oh well you're doing an article on this you know that, that that's kind of neat and these are these are people who are like established professionals and they were happy to hear what I was working on 
on to give feedback to give advice right like it's pretty like it's, it's been pretty amazing that's awesome you know to get to work in that atmosphere so that's why you know when somebody's studio like everybody is is studio right you're not like there's not you know people who are like better studio people than everybody else like studio is studio and the anthology i think really shows that that's awesome where can people find you online if they want to follow your career uh, how can people track you down so they can find me at uh, www.anthonyfalcone.ca um, you can find me at twitter at a falcone writer uh, instagram is also a falcone writer at Storybeater on twitter for the podcast and uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, just head to raid.world and you'll get to see everything that I'm doing uh, with the studio as well. Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, I, I think I made a new mentor. All right. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. great. We'll uh, see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check HarryT.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.